Hello and welcome to If Anyone Cares. My name is Riley James. We thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of this podcast. I'm so grateful I get to do this each and every month. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been that long since the last episode, so it's been about three weeks. But we got two episodes ready and queued up for the month. We're very, very excited. We're so thankful that you're here. Today's show is with a man from Penrith, England. I know it's not the usual American, but we decided to switch it up this week. I'm very, very happy he decided to come on the show. He's a, a man that I, I have respected and admired for a long time, and to be able to talk to him for, I believe we talked for like an hour and 45 minutes. I think I cut it down to an hour and whatever this is. He was a joy to talk to. He sees life differently, and I, I, I appreciate that. We come from the same cloth in the regard that we both love soccer or, or football as, as we refer to it um, because he's you know he's English but we talk about Major League Soccer we talk about the work he's done with Leicester City we talk about some of the storytelling from the 2018 World Cup in Russia he's a a fantastic artist he's a fantastic storyteller I'm so so thankful that he decided to come on our show and I'm thankful that you listen to our show because you really like you don't have any reason to you could pick any other podcast in the world. I'm sure you listen to multiple podcasts, but you choose to make this one a part of your routine, and I cannot be more thankful for that. Numbers keep going up every week, and I I don't know what to even say to that. It's been the honor of my lifetime so far. I'm sure I'm going to do much cooler things. I'm not saying this podcast isn't cool, but calling a Super Bowl or like calling a World Cup final, those things are great. But this podcast has been the joy of my lifetime so far, and I'm very, very excited to see where this goes because it's getting bigger and bigger, and I just something's gonna pop here pretty soon. So, nevertheless, you can follow the show at if anyone cares underscore. We need to probably get that up if anything's gonna pop. You can follow me at Riley James IEC. You can follow the you can follow the show on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. You can subscribe, rate, and review. You can give us five stars. You can say nice comments. Uh, it really does help people find us. I mean, a lot of people don't believe that. I, I've seen some some five star ratings recently. We've gone up. Um, they're still at four point five. So if you can guys to get that up to five out of five, I'd be I'd, I'd be ecstatic. If you can guys can get that up from four point five to five, I'd be so so thankful for you guys. Um, but not really a whole lot to add. Send this to your friends. Send this to like your ex-girlfriend you haven't talked to in six months or that friend you really just want to connect with and you don't really have an icebreaker. Send them to that, send this picture, that, not maybe not this show, but like any, any of our episodes to them. Maybe this episode too, because this one's going to need a lot of listens at the jump. But, I didn't even say the guy's name yet. His name is, his name is Nathan McVitie. You might have gathered that from clicking the episode name. Um, at Nathan McVitie, it's N-A-T-H-E. In MCM or MCV ITTIE, Nathan McVitie. So thankful he joined the show, and I've talked about it long enough. Here's our interview with Nathan McVitie. On the line today is a man who's living in Los Angeles, California, but he's from Penrith, England. I'm very excited to talk to this man. I'm so thankful he made time for the show today. Nathan McVitie, you doing well? 
I'm doing very well. It's a it's a lovely little morning in Los Angeles, which is something I've come to get used to. Uh, the sun is out, my English skin is shining, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I'm having a great morning. A lovely, relaxing Saturday morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. It's not as cool here. It's very hot. It's 96 degrees, but Ooh. my American skin is it's. <laughs> not glowing it's actually burning and sweating but it it's fine we'll get used to it um yeah you, you and me, you and me were just talking about the weather before we started uh you went to houston a few weeks ago for Bayern munich and uh, real madrid and that was awful yeah so you got a little taste of what we deal with all the time i know i know the most this is something i will say the most american thing is talking about the weather before you get into stuff but the small talk but um no it's true like just, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about journeys and stuff later, but the journey of my, after many years, the journey of my time through America has pretty much been defined. You could probably boil it down and define it by the weather that I've experienced. I've seen like the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And it's just like Houston was some weird hellish middle ground that exists in an alternate <laughs> dimension. It was. It was lovely to be outside, but it was also just like the most painful experience of my life. That's the best way to describe Houston. Just a hellish middle ground. Yeah. I should put that on the plaque when you first enter the city. (laughs) Um, But you you talked about growing up in in England. So what was that? What was that like as a, as a child? And when did the idea to come to America kind of hatch? I mean, we're, con- we're about to condense, well, I just turned 31, so we're about to condense 31 years of history into about three minutes, but um, I, I grew up in the, in, the north, in the north of England, in a tiny little town called Penrith in Cumbria, which is right next to the Lake District, basically in the Lake District. Uh, all trees, mountains, you know, nothing is there. My town was all immigrants, uh, sorry. Not immigrants. There was there was barely any immigrants where I grew up, which is something I'll come to later on. But where I grew up was all elderly people, right? All elderly like locals where there was like not many immigrants, like very closed off kind of area. And I knew early that I wanted to get out. Um, I went to boarding school for like eight years. I went to two different boarding schools where I met world, and it was kind of an eye opening thing for me. Um, just being in that part of the world, but meeting people from all over that were coming and loving the place I lived. But I wanted to get out. Like just growing up there, it was just so mind-numbingly English, and I just it felt so restrictive. And that's kind of been a theme my entire life, really. Just wanting to move and progress and kind of feel like there's actual tangible growth and feel like I'm just making strides, I guess. Um, and, you know, I had family in America. I came to America the first time in 1996, went to Chicago. I flew on my own as a seven-year-old from Manchester. And it was right in the middle of the Chicago Bulls championship run, 96, I think it was. One of them, anyway. One of the most famous ones. And had my birthday in America, my eighth birthday. And for some reason, like it didn't really plant in my head then, but it was like definitely looking back, it was a formative moment because I've been to America dozens and dozens and hundreds of times since then, maybe not hundreds, but a lot. 
And uh, I always, pretty much from the third or fourth time I ever came, I was just trying to make that leap. I was wanting to move. Um, It was a cultural thing and a progression thing, like I just mentioned. But I loved how diverse everything was when I met people. Um, A lot of the interests I had in terms of music and culture, they were kind of out there. They were a bit left field, a bit alternative in England. The music I liked wasn't on the charts. It wasn't people. It was alternative. But in America, it was popular. And so when I visited everything, I felt like I could be myself, which was a really empowering thing. In America, I felt like I could, you know, I didn't have to temper myself or change how I looked or anything to to, to exist and be accepted in the States. Whereas in England, I felt like I did. I felt like I was always going to be like a bit of an outcast or just different it's really empowering and uh that's like the personal journey it was just always a bit of a wanting to move type of situation i'm sure a lot of people have experienced that and i you know for years tried to figure out how to make it work eventually uh i guess i should mention that i left school boarding school at 16 this is the whirlwind the whirlwind explanation I left boarding school at 16 and started my own record label, which was a lot of fun and a good time lasted a few years still going. I'm not involved. I toured with music, toured with bands, went all over the States, 48 States. I traveled to all over England, the UK with music. Did that for like five or six years, had a great time, but got sick of it in the end. Needed a change. Eventually got to art school applied to two art schools in New York, got into Parsons, went to Parsons, which was difficult. I'm making it sound easy and quick, but it was really difficult and expensive. And uh, I couldn't afford it and dropped out after two years, moved back to England. And the entire time, like even before going to art school, I was trying to move to the States, trying to figure out a way to get there. And that was my in. And then after being there, it really solidified that I wanted to move. So I had to move back to England because of visa and money stuff. Moved back to England. And then for the next four years, pretty much, I was trying to figure out how to get back and eventually applied for my visa. And here I am now living in L.A. Finally made it work. So the the first time you moved to the United States, you were 22 and living yep. in New York City. Yeah, that is a, That is a very large transition from moving to England to New York City. How did you handle that mentally, and what was the move like? Well, you know, I think for a lot of people it would be a bigger deal. Not to sound, I don't mean that to sound uh, arrogant in any way. I really don't mean that. All I mean to say is that I'd spent a lot of time in America previously. So I had uh, I'd already been to 48 states. I'd already seen the best and the worst. I'd already seen the deserts and the hills, you know, I'd seen everything pretty much America had to offer by that point. Uh, I'd experienced the weather, you know, everywhere. So I was pretty well prepared. I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of like, I had a huge network of people in in New York and everywhere else. So there was no cultural shock, really. There was a few little things, you know, like opening bank accounts and stuff that was a little crazy, but um, I could pull on my, history of visiting America to, to make it easy to live there. The process itself was pretty frustrating. You know, America doesn't make it easy for anyone to get in, whether you're, you know, black, white, brown, whatever, like America is just a 
notorious like english you know canadian whatever wherever you're from whatever you look like whoever you are america is a pretty notoriously difficult place to get into um and so i i worked really hard to get to get that and eventually made it happen the easiest way for me at that time was to be a student so um the cultural shock didn't exist i was used to that but the um the adaption you kind of slide into the day-to-day life you know there's there's differences you know all of america's bread is really really sweet there's added sugar in everything like the way that people still use checkbooks you know there's things that you just don't think about that are like really different and you only get that from day-to-day life but it was pretty easy you know once you once you got here you you're so passionate about being here and living a new life that you you kind of ice and smooth over all of the, the the things and the differences and the problems and you get used to it. Um, but the process, you know, visas, not easy. Moving your life, shipping objects, a lot of organizational stuff, not easy or fun. But once you've done it, it's, it's pretty good. Artistically, what, yeah. what really gets you going? And I think... I mean, it's a really difficult question to answer because, you know, the, the, the cop-out answer is everything. But <laughs> I think, well, like, if I'm... So just to try to walk you through a little bit of my brain, like, if I'm flicking through a book or if I'm looking at art in a museum or whatever it is, the things that really grab me are the fundamentals. And maybe that's because I didn't complete four or five years of art school. <laughs> but I have always been attracted to really... Um, simple things but really eye-catching thing I, I love color i love shapes i love i love things that are pretty loud and bold and in your face you know so i like punk design from like the 80s i like i like uh mark rothko paintings i like joseph albers i like color theory i like typography i like you know, really, I like graffiti. I like street signs a lot, you know, subway, subway navigation system. Like this, and it's really nerdy, but just things that like have to get a point across really quickly, really easily. Um, that kind of stuff inspires me. So when it comes to the actual visuals, it's always color and shape. When it comes to actual uh, subject matter it can be a bit of anything I nowadays because I'm working pretty heavily in football a lot of it is to do with community and people's relationships to things that really like storytelling community really really interests me that's probably that's more of a product of of soccer than it is of as of music but um, I really find a lot of interest in people's specific relationships to things so how they react to where they grew up or how they react to travel or how they react to art themselves whatever it is i I find a lot of inspiration in those things uh it's it's difficult because every process is 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 individual especially if you're branding a company or a project you have to really put yourself in the position in the shoes of those users especially with a football team and you're branding one it's you've got to almost fool yourself into being a, a person from that area or a fan of that area you do so much research so it really changes but 
inspiration is often defined by my experience of things. I think I have a vast array of things to pull from, whether that's soccer or music, whether that's England or America, whether that's travel to different countries or family experiences or whatever it is. I always try to pull on one thing at least, just like pull, pull one experience or memory or vivid visual from my brain somewhere. I, I think I, I went to Harry Potter at Universal the other day. And, you know, one thing that reminded me was, I don't know if you know Harry Potter or if anyone, this is a really nerdy thing, and, but <laughs> I was like, there's one scene in one of the books where he like, pulls like memories from his brain from a, with a wand, which I can't remember what it's called. I'm not that huge of a Harry Potter fan, but it always stood out to me. He's like, he puts a wand to his head and pulls out memories into like a bowl and you can then experience them again and weirdly i don't I, obviously i'm not magic i can't do that but i i always think about that when i'm designing not always sometimes think about that when i'm designing because i'm always pulling things out of my brain to like re, to rehash them or re-experience them or whatever it is and that always stands out and i'm always just like yeah that's great i wish i could actually do that so i could vividly put myself in you know a memory from when i was 14 to really give myself an emotion um yeah there's no real succinct way of answering that question of inspiration really but i think it is it's a weird i'd, I'd really be interested in other creatives too but for me it's a really strange kind of mashup of experience and visual like past present experience and visual i, I try and craft a a web or some kind of weird network in my head of things that I can pull from whenever needed. It's just, it's a amalgamation of everything I've ever been everywhere I've ever been or ever, anyone I've ever been, you know, just trying to remember everything so I can use it in the future as experience of visual reference. This may not have been the thing to pull from that, but when you're talking about the like the bright colors and the thing that gets uh, the point across yeah. really quick, I just thought of the new Arsenal yellow kit that it's come mm -hmm. out with. And it's like that's yeah. really bright. And I know you just did some stuff with that a few days ago, <laughs> but yeah. those type of things, like those bright colors uh, that pop, yeah, that you know get you get you kind of thinking about. It. And it's funny you bring up the the street signs and the the subway um, street kind of thing to let you know where you're going those are really interesting because they one is the destination it's where you're going but it's also here's how to get there yeah and it's it's more of a deeper meaning than just like hey it's over here it's like yeah. you have to go along this path well i those i mean i feel a little remiss using those as examples because they're pretty basic examples like for, as a design point of view like a visual communication point of view they're pretty basic examples you learn them pretty early on but they've been planted in my head ever since i was introduced to them as actual projects or whatever it is you want to call them i just think that they're so infinitely complex on the underside just the amount of things they have to do you know they have to communicate wayfinding internally like on a small like you've got to find the exit or the right platform but you've also got to find the right destination as well which is really difficult you've got to find out when the train is arriving or whatever you've got to find out where the bathrooms are how to buy tickets you've got to find out 
what's allowed, what's not, what, you know, all these different things. But then also you got to do it in to people who don't speak your language, especially in, in cities that, you know, all those things, it's got so many goals and you've got to do it with such a simple system that's understandable by so many people. It's like so complex and it's all got to be pretty uh, sleek, simple, refined. Excuse me. You can't get too, too in the, in the depths about it. There's just a really interesting history of, of signage and it's, it's a weird juxtaposition of complexity and simplicity when it comes to designing and that always always inspires me i think systems are really like design systems i guess you could reduce that down to is like fascinating to me and i just think it's great i'm wearing an interstate 10 shirt right now it's kind of you know <laughs> kind of brings it all one. together that's a really interesting one i don't i've never really studied the interstate design system but you know you everyone recognizes you know, interstate signs, they recognize like Route 66, they recognize all of these things. Like even in England, you've got A roads, B roads, C roads, motorways. Like even if you don't drive, you know what that is. And I'm sure it's kind of the thing where if you had like a, sorry, we're going off topic, but if you had like a, <laughs> like a, a newbie driver, that newbie driver, maybe, maybe it's an immigrant like myself who's never driven in America. I now have, but if I'd never driven in America, like the first time I get on that road, I'm driving 60, 70 miles an hour and I've got to read a sign and understand it quickly enough. And I want to get on an interstate or whatever it is. I want to get on a highway. I'm going to know in the space of a couple of seconds when I'm driving that fast, speeding lumps of metal all around me, like what, where I need to go, you know, safely. It's kind of a crazy thing because the brain, you got to design for the brain and the subconscious. It's wild to me. Wild to me. And the interstate, I love the interstates because where I'm at in Lake Charles, Louisiana, I can just hop on I-10 and go to Houston yeah. in two hours a straight shot. But I can go all the way to Los Angeles. I can go all the way to Florida just on this one road. Yeah. And... You know, it's a very, it's going back to the, it's very simple, but it's also very complex. Like it goes across so many different states. It, it provides so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. And true. it's, it runs through my hometown. Like that's a place that connects to Los Angeles and to Florida is in my hometown as well. So it's this unifying thing yeah, that makes you feel like a whole country. And it's great. Yeah, it's and great. I would love to see, I would love to see like a wide map of, I mean, I've probably seen it in the past, but a wide map of the states that has that those kind of veins, you know, like that circul circulatory system highlighted, like all of the the interstates drawn out and pulled focus, because that'd be interesting to see how everything is connected like that. It's kind of like when I look down at if I'm on a plane or if I'm looking at a satellite view or something. I know my Apple TV has this, like it has like, these beautiful screensavers. They have space station views and you can to look down at the planet and you see where like all the population is because of all the, where the lights are on a country. It's just, it's kind of like that. You can see traces of humans based on what the construction that they've made or the lights that are on. It's super interesting. Yeah, it's, it's humans are the dominant species on this planet. We've made the Earth what it is for us. Yes. No other species has done that. It's, it's a very fascinating thing to even think about. 
because we built roads and we have cars and houses when other animals just kind of hang out in burrows. Like they, <laughs> they like it's, 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 it's but all, all of that is designed though. Right. Designed like those animals design those burrows in ways that we don't even understand. You know, we unintentionally make beautiful art when we, um, lay out cities and streetlights like from from the space station, international space station if you look down to see those lights it's kind of art you know it's yeah it's it's, int- it's super like everything is creative if you really dive deep enough on it i think i want to switch gears a little bit because we just went down a <laughs> went down a rabbit hole right there <laughs> uh i, I want to talk about some of the stuff you've done with um art and football together some more of the stuff you've done now so you you started where is football in 2009 right yeah so it was we did i didn't i wasn't around exactly in 2009 so uh, our friends our good friends eric beard and dominic vieira started a football report in 2009 which later became where is football i kind of got involved around 2012 11 12 and uh, Zach Goldman as well around the same time and we later rebranded it to Warriors football but yes uh, Warriors football started in, in 2009 essentially so when you so when you hopped on what uh-huh. was the creative goal and did it turn out the way you expected it to um you know a football report was always a bit more of a blogging and a blogging platform that's a bit disingenuous it was more of a storytelling it was still a storytelling platform but it was much more player focused or as much more on field focused as maybe you can tell by the name when we decided to rebrand to where is football that became that shifted our focus a lot we we were always telling stories around football we were always telling people's stories on our you know on instagram and showcasing places but we were on a football report Instagram and hashtagging Warriors football. It became apparent that we were people were really interested in those types of stories and highlights. So we basically took that hashtag and made it the entire brand name and shifted gears to telling those stories and visual stories about people playing football all over the world. And it it was something people really resonated with. I think a football report was always a little bit, um, yeah, more player focused, more actual performance focused. It was more of a, it was one of the first, I think, but it was of digital outlets covering football, but it was, which is a bit dime a dozen now, but um, it was still breaking new ground, but just in a different way back then. What is one story that you did with that more of the community focused thing, more of the where people are stories that really got to you and touched you? There's so, so many. Like, it's a really difficult question to answer. I think, I mean, the the one that really comes to mind is we did one. It's, you know, I'm sure Zach, who I do this with now, he'll, if he listens to this, he'll laugh because I always mention it, but we always mention it, but the Iranian women, story we did last year at the world cup in 2018 was really amazing it was it was kind of it wasn't even planned to be honest we were going to russia to get stories but we didn't and we knew about the the iranian women couldn't attend games at home in iran but it wasn't a story we planned to get but 
what happened was we went to Iran versus Morocco and there was a lot of women going, you know, women from all over the world, the diaspora of Iran and every kind of woman with, with headscarves without, you know, queer women and straight women and everything in between. And that story about just, it was really simple as well. It was literally just taking photographs and giving them a couple of lines, but that was really powerful because at the time I think they've lacked, they've, they've, they've loosened the rules since, but women could not attend football games in Iran. And so they would travel to Russia to watch the national team play at the world cup. And for some of them, it was their first ever time seeing that the Iranian national team play live. So that was pretty amazing. That really stands out because we were, you know, a group of us, American and English in Russia, doing a story about Iranian women was really special. Um, and seeing the support that they had there, that was really nice. And then on another, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some really, some of my favorites, but on another token, uh, there's two others that come to mind. The one we did for Ryan Torero around the World Cup, our friend Ryan, she played the, she plays for Chile at um, the national team, La Roja. She is Chilean-American, uh, American-Chilean, whichever way you want to put it. She had never really been to Chile until kind of recently, and but her mom is Chilean. And so she's played professional, semi-professional, amateur football her entire life, talented goalkeeper. And La Roja, the... Federation, they, that's sorry, that was French, not Spanish pronunciation, <laughs> confusing my countries. Um, the, the Federation in Chile, they found out that she was eligible to, you know, she could get a passport. So they contacted her and she flew to Santiago and ended up trying out and they capped her and she went to the World Cup in the end. Because the story is much more nuanced than that, but we did a story on her. We did photo story, photojournalism story with video and everything. That was a really amazing story to tell because she was American, but Chilean and Chile's second game at the world cup was against the USA. So in pirates. So Ryan basically got to face, uh, she didn't end up playing, but she was facing the USA as an American, but playing for Chile at the women's world cup which is an amazing story that comes to mind. And then I really like the grassroots stories we do. So we do a lot of, we've done a lot of stuff about like non-league day. We've done stuff on team. I used to go see in London a lot, Clapton. We've done stuff on, uh, who else have we done? I think we've done some stuff on Dulwich and Kingstonian, you know, these lower division teams. I like a lot, even American lower division teams, the grassroots stuff really scratches an itch for me and really tell some important stories about where global football culture is at the moment. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. There's stuff from everywhere. Um, and I like it all. I like every single story we've ever told. So I, I can appreciate the grassroots stories because I myself did not start watching soccer or football until mm -hmm. 2015. It was after mm -hmm. the 14 World Cup. I got on the whole United States did you say women's world cup no the men's, men's world cup the, the 14 world cup right so the united states going you know beating ghana drawing portugal 
playing Germany, losing the way they did against Belgium. And then 2015, yeah. I really dug deep into, I'm going to watch MLS. I'm going to watch the end of this Premier League season. I'm going to, uh-huh. I'm going to invest emotionally. And the first MLS game I watched was the Red Bulls in Philadelphia after the World Cup. But it was just kind of, okay, maybe a World Cup high. But 15, I sat down. I'm going to watch it. The first game that year was Orlando versus New York City. Mm-hmm. It was the two oh, the, the, the two new teams, right? Brand new teams playing at Cape and World Stadium down in Orlando. And yeah. digging and, and finding things on this team, New York City had never played a game before, but Orlando had, had USL ties. And the whole grassroots campaign that Orlando put on, they're t- such a tourist city. People go there, Disney World, and all these other things. They really connected to the community of Orlando. I've I'm not from I'm not from Florida. I've been to Florida a handful of times. But the way they connected to that city, the way they showed up and showed out every single game, whether the team was good and bad, and trust me, I've been an Orlando fan for three years now. They they've been bad. Really, really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but still the fans go and they're they're so connected to that team. So the grassroots things I can really appreciate. And that's on a much larger scale here in MLS. Yeah. There's plenty of teams that play in baseball stadiums in the middle of America, but I can appreciate the grassroots stories. So I, I, when I yeah. find those, when I find things like that. I love those. I mean, you're seeing it more and more now. I mean, Orlando, I was say one of the first, but one of the highest profile ones. You know, Orlando has serious roots. I mean, with the USL roots, and then previously when USL wasn't what it is now, you have the Austin Aztecs roots, you know, yeah. and those guys moving to Orlando. I remember the I was in Orlando. I spent like four months, three months in Orlando in 2011. It was my one of my ex-girlfriends was living there and I stayed with her for a long time. And the day of the cha- the USL championship final in 2011, I was trying to get my friend, because I didn't have a car, I was trying to get my friend to drive me to um, Citrus Bowl, I think it was, where they played, yeah. to go to that game. But he was like, soccer in Orlando no way I'm not taking you to that like no so I couldn't go because I couldn't get a ride to the stadium you know there was no uber or anything and I was broke I didn't have any money so my friend didn't want to drive me I couldn't go and then they won it and then obviously the rest is history of Orlando to you to MLS but there's like some really interesting kind of MLS has these really interesting juxtapositions of grassroots and big money teams you know you'll often have like an fc cincy or a or even like a minnesota united might be a better example of really fan oriented teams that go big time through mls and they try and hold on to a lot of these things like traditions and everything often it feels quite engineered but a lot of the fan traditions still are present i it's 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 a new way of doing things and it's it's interesting it's not good not bad to me but it seems very the time frames i think in mls or in american soccer fandom are often very condensed so a team doesn't have 30 years to establish itself as a lower division stalwart with fan traditions and everything else and local legends and things because you have to think pretty quickly about how they're going to survive in this capitalistic marketplace or rather socialistic in American soccer. But, you know, you don't really have those, like the timeframes to establish yourself because you've got to change. And then after five or six years, you're aiming for MLS and then you've got to change again and new fans have got to adapt and you get new fans in, you know, that's the, 
Sacramento way. That's the Minnesota way. That's the Orlando way. That's the Cincinnati way. All of these teams are making the bump up. It's kind of an interesting condensed time frame of fandom and relationship with fans that the, the team has. So it's really interesting. But I think grassroots in the States is super unique and especially really unique in light of the the lower divisions in America, you know, from your NPSLs, your NESLs, your NISAs, all of these things, like, it's just really fascinating how all of these things keep getting organized, keep struggling, some of them succeed, you get teams born out of them. It's, it's, I thought five or six years ago, we'd see the end of the Wild West, Especially when when the NESL and the Cosmos came back in 2013, I thought, okay, finally we've got some stability. But it's been anything but, obviously. And so, I'm just, it's really interesting to me to see it continue this way, with no end in sight. Because I don't know what grassroots American soccer is going to look like in five years. I don't think anyone does. But you know, yeah, who knows? It's fascinating, nevertheless. MLS is the most interesting league in the world. When it comes to everything yeah. behind the scenes on how everything works, uh, it's it's definitely teams relocate all the time. Like San Jose moved to Houston back in the day, and then yeah. teams just like drop in it. Like Chivas just dropped out of nowhere. Like it it happens, and the money is being shifted around. There's no promotion relegation, so teams just pop up. Like Cincinnati's popped up this year out of USL. <laughs> Uh, Nashville's coming in next year from USL. Austin is an expansion team coming in. It's There's so many moving parts that other countries and other leagues in the world don't have to deal with. But yeah. these manufactured grassroots like Austin, like it's like they're not there. They have a team there, Austin Bold. But they're trying to create this soccer community when they're really from Columbus. And yeah, I mean, Anthony Precourt's coming down and trying to create this whole Austin community that's not really there. It's it's very it's, it's very odd. It is kind of strange, but it is what we've got. And uh, the I think this is one thing I always tell people about American soccer, especially British people I come in contact with that don't really know so much. Often, the sooner you embrace the idiosyncrasies and just accept the weirdness, the more fun you're going to have. I know it's like <laughs> it, it never stops being frustrating and crazy. But the the more the, the quicker that you, especially as like English people who are very self righteous about fandom and culture, the the sooner that you get over like the cringe or the weirdness of teams or whatever it is, history stuff, the more fun it is. It's an amazing time, even through its all of its crap. It's still a great a great place to enjoy soccer. Um, you just gotta kind of go along for the ride a little bit, you know? Right, and you can appreciate the small rivalries that haven't been around that long. Like Atlanta and Orlando have played four times, five times ever. Yeah. As opposed to Seattle and Portland who have played 103. You can yeah. you, you have to appreciate those rivalries for what they are. Yeah. Whether it's manufactured like Atlanta or Orlando or it's true you, genuine hate like Seattle and Portland. You also just... That the reason that those like four times often feel like fifty, that you know, from the fan perspective, is because every single one of those fans realizes that they're defining the history themselves. So they're, they're active in creating a rivalry. They're active in creating this. So 
and that was the first thing I got into MLS for like 10, 12, whatever years ago was because every time I watched, I felt like I was one feeling I got from defining what American soccer could be is something that's kept me a lot around today. It's the carrot in front of my, my nose, in front, you know, carrot on a stick that's kept me around and involved for the last decade and a bit. It's like, I want to be around this because I feel like I can affect change. I can do something. Even if it's like you're a fan of one team and you don't even work in soccer, like even just by buying a season ticket, you're a culture, defining a rivalry. I think a lot of MLS fans are more savvy to that than teams in other leagues because other leagues are more defined culturally. But MLS, every time somebody watches, I think they feel a little bit of I'm helping grow something or I'm part of a community that is developing something. And, you know, it's still powerful for me all this time later. So hopefully it's something that is a a hook for, for newbies coming in as well. The interesting thing with American soccer culture is that we, and you just kind of brought it up a little bit, we get to create the culture Yeah. right now. MLS has been around for 24 years. It's, it's coming into its 24th season, or it's, it's in it right now. England has had leagues dating back to the 1800s, early 1900s. Germany has been around for a while. Bundesliga. Uh, Syria A has been around forever. MLS as the current state right now, has only been around since 1996. And yeah, there are soccer leagues before that. Yeah, Pele played here. But the current American soccer generation is right now 24 years old. So we have an opportunity to create the culture as we go along. We can kind of make up the rules because we have no precedent to go off of. This is American soccer. We're going to make it weird. We're not the most popular sport in America, but we're going to make it ours. And the stadiums might not be full all the time, but we're going there. Like we're getting to the point. There's so many people in this country for it, it to not work. There's so many immigrants that come into this country. There's so many there's so much diversity for it to not work. And this is the time. They tried in the past, but this is the time that Americans really embrace this game. And and Roger Bennett talks about this all the time. I'm in a blazer. America American soccer is the sport of the future since nineteen seventy two. But it's finally clicking. MLS is has more money than it ever has. It's it's so incredibly interesting to see this thing grow, especially as a young MLS reporter, because I've been yeah. in it since fifteen. But I've watched, I, I've, I've watched it grow, and I've grown up with it, as opposed to someone who's in their forties and fifties, just see MLS for what it is, and see it from the start. I've grown up with it. I've gotten older. I've gotten more mature with MLS, as opposed to someone being twenty years old when it started. Yeah, and it's interesting just because like, I love MLS, and I know a lot of people do, but I think anyone with any sense of uh, anyone looking at it in an impartial impartial way would realize that MLS and American soccer in general has a lot of flaws, right? So while all of this is great, I think there are a lot of stuff we need to fix still. And it's the kind of thing you can only do when you iterate and and learn from the past and move forward. I mean, it's the longest running professional American soccer league in history, pretty much, I think. I think it's longer than the ASL in the early 20th century. But it is an amazing place. I think there's a lot lot where it needs to go. And I'm not sure how you want to steer this on the conversation in MLS. But, you know, I think there is real... um, 
fan input that is valuable. And I think we're seeing a lot of that fan input because, you know, same same as in England with the Premier League, I think sometimes all of this fan input, uh, of, they often feel disregarded or invisible. And we're seeing more and more of an explosion in NPSL or in the USA, yeah, USPL, whatever it is, whatever lower division you want to acronym you want to come up with. I think a lot of people feel like they can control their own destiny somewhat in the lower leagues and they don't need Kaka to sign for them. They don't need like a superstar or a DPs or anything. They just want a community and a culture that they can create and define and be in control of, which is amazing. To me, that is the most amazing thing. That's where my brain goes to these days. Um, but the fact that we're in a place where both of those can exist is one of the best um, the best pieces of the puzzle I can imagine. You know, I think soccer culture needs both to flourish. You need you need both ends of the spectrum. So it's it's very nice to see. I want to ask you as an Englishman, but also yeah. as someone who's lived in America and experienced this, mm-hmm. the difference between the cultures, the difference between the overall public perception of these sports in these two separate countries, what has been the biggest contrast, but also the biggest, uh, the, the biggest similarity? I mean, the biggest similarity is we watch 22 people kick a, kick a ball around, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's a stupid answer, but like, that's why I like football is because I can go to, I've never been to China, but I could go to China and watch the same exact thing. All right. You know, I can go go to Cuba and play football with kids in Havana. And it's the that is literally the same thing. It's such a basic answer and it's kind of a cop-out for me. But it is literally, that is like the best thing to me. That like defines everything. The fact that it's a language on its own and it's exactly the same wherever you go is the best. It is so good. Um, but the biggest difference, I mean, it's not the biggest difference. It's not the question you answered, you asked, but um, I think the most difficult thing for me, and this is sort of embarrassing to admit, but I really struggled at first, and I touched on this earlier, was kind of disassociating myself from that like British self-righteousness of football fandom. So there's this like undercurrent or like subconscious of, I feel often of English people who they think they're like the football fan police. They often culturally whether you realize it or not you come into something with preconceived notions of what a fan should be um so like you drop a stereotypical british football fan in buenos aires and they might respect the fandom but they would think oh no not for me like take me back to manchester and give me a pie like that as soon as you can kind of elevate past that and appreciate everyone for everything that they are and the individual nuances and everything else, as soon as you can really invest yourself in understanding people and communities and cultures in their own individual way, especially when it comes to football and how people connect to that game, that's when you really start to, well, at least I'm talking from personal experience, that's when I start to started to really just love it really really get into it and when it comes to the american side of things when i i I got season tickets to the red bulls when i was living in new york as soon as i like really accepted that weird kind of 
mashup of Spanish and English and mashup of like Polish and German and Italian and all that is so unique and so much a melting pot in those stands in the fan sections that like it took me so long to get used to you know there's more Spanish songs than English as an English person who's never been around Spanish crowds before that took a while you know all of the nuances of fan culture was the most difficult thing for me to get used to but also the most empowering thing once I had and I'm I'm sure like I know the the men in blazers guys a little bit on a personal level. I don't, we haven't hung out that much, but, um, and shamefully I don't subscribe to the podcast anymore because I don't listen to podcasts that much, but they, I know for a fact they do a great job in kind of being that voice, not voice of reason, but they, you know, speak, they have, they call upon British, sensibilities but have worked in america for so long now that they get it and they can speak both dialects really well um so there's a really interesting culmination of this transatlanticism of football support that is i find fascinating i think a lot of people try to inflict a britishness upon american soccer too often in the way that the NFL tries to inflict uh, American football or American sports type of thing on MLS and American soccer too often. People aren't willing to let MLS or American soccer, they're not synonymous. American soccer, they don't let it flourish on its own often enough. And I, I realized quite, um, it's pretty uh, hypocritical for somebody with like myself with a British accent to be talking about this, about American soccer, because I'm considerate that we're past the point now where American soccer and, and, and U.S. soccer and everyone else needs people with British voices to tell them what to do in the boardroom. <laughs> like we, that's just not needed anymore. It, to be honest, it was probably never needed. Maybe it, maybe in the thirties or something, but um, I'm quite conscious of my, the hypocritical, hypocritical nature of me saying this, but um I think American soccer needs to flourish on its own independently of other cultures or at least independently of the emulation of other cultures. So I think once I got past that and I realized that point, I really, really, really loved everything America had to offer, especially because it's so big and there's so many people. Houston is different to Orlando and is different to Boise, Idaho, which is different to columbus which is different to cleveland and cincinnati you know you can be like an hour away from someone else and it's completely different so yeah it's a long-winded way of giving my answer but i think it's it's just the the nuance once i came to to grasp and embrace the nuance i really started to lose my preconceived notions and and enjoy it more so the the thing with having British commentary to yes. MLS, so you have John Champion on ESPN, but then you have Fox with an American commentator, John Strong. Yeah. The changing culture that we're moving away from Ian Dark and Adrian Healy and John Champion. I, I love Ian Dark. Ian Dark is one of my favorite commentators of all time. Yeah. Um, 
but to hear John Strong, an American voice, he's from Portland, commentating games in Major League Soccer and commentating games when Fox had the rights to the Champions League, yeah. that is a step in the right direction for me. But I, yeah, but I, I do I do want to get your um your comment on when you go to MLS games and you're you're around that atmosphere you talked about the songs in spanish i when i cover the dynamo i see a bunch of real madrid jerseys i see a bunch of barcelona jerseys i see liga mx jerseys what is your opinion on the just there's so many different leagues that people support there's so many different teams from other countries what's your take on that kind of soccer fandom that we're not necessarily in our own league but we still support soccer in America. I mean, uh, any any way that I answer this is going to sound hypocritical. Um, it's yeah, it's it's difficult. I think you know. So an example is when I was when I was uh, when I had season tickets to the Red Bulls in 2011, 2012, whenever it was. I really, really hated seeing. Um, I really hated seeing. Thierry Henry Barcelona, Thierry Henry Arsenal jerseys. I really just did not like that at all. And it was just frustrating. I think now I don't care so much. I really, it does not bother me. I think people just want to watch football often. I think people just want to see the game live in front of them. And I think they don't mind, you know, necessarily what that looks like and who that is. Or in my mind, I hope it is. I, I have to say, I don't love, still don't like fully love it. I, I wish in an ideal world people would get fully behind the team that they're going to watch. But that's, you know, that's not something I need to worry about. That's something a team or a league needs to worry about to create that local passion and fandom uh, in market. It's beautiful to see. And often, you know, it's kind of that elitist protectionism thing, which we need to lose to grow the game. You know, me feeling that way or somebody feeling that way is often because they feel better than somebody else because they're wearing the home team shirt or whatever it is. And, you know, maybe it's the person's first game. Maybe it's their first ever Dynamo game, whatever it is. You can't, you need to lose that, I think. And I've learned to somewhat over the years. Um, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. And I think it's something that, there's much, I guess. The, I guess my larger point here is that just there's there's many more larger issues at play than what jersey somebody wears to go watch a professional game in America. You know, at, at least if they're wearing a soccer jersey, it shows that they are part of that community and that they're willing to be converted in some way. So it doesn't really affect me anymore. Um, and everyone has their own reasons. It's pretty eye-opening just because we I went recently and did work with Audi and Bayern Munich on this summer tour. You know, going to NRG in Houston, the stadium, and seeing, you know, 60,000 people wearing Real Madrid and Bayern Munich shirts in Houston, Texas, was super fascinating. I had this conversation recently about the Real Madrid fans. A lot of them, you know, Latinx, like, Hispanic Latin fans often. And it's like those, I find a lot of my Spanish speaking Central American, South American friends in America who like Liga MX or like um, Liga MX or like 
La Liga, whatever it is, Spanish-speaking leagues, it's e- it's an easier point of introduction for them. You know, the language is the same. Often a lot of them also like Premier League, but there's like a huge, huge section of Spanish-speaking Central American fans that love Real Madrid or Barcelona or whatever else because it's an easy access point. And, you know, there's a really interesting cultural tie there that you don't really get with the Premier League. And it's something the Liga has not capitalized on. To be honest, it's something MLS has not capitalized on, you know. When Liga MX is like the biggest league in America, bigger than MLS, you know, that's something that should make people take note, which they seemingly haven't yet. But um, it's difficult, man. Like, we are on this journey. We're on this pathway of cultural... American soccer community, cultural progression, development, whatever you want to say. We're all on it. Some of us have been on it longer than others. But all we can do is try to... We're building a passion at the same time as building a business often. And you just got to keep on keeping on. You've got to adapt, roll with the punches, and, and just keep pushing ahead. We all talk a lot of crap on things that we don't like around American soccer, but at the end of the day, we, we talk that crap online or whatever it is because we like it, we're passionate, we want to see it do better. I never c- criticize anyone online that I don't have some respect for. I mean, that's not true, but I try to <laughs> only like cr- constructively criticize people I have respect for. If I call out a team for doing something stupid, it's because I want them to do better. You know what I mean? Right. So anyone wearing a soccer jersey of a different team to an MLS game doesn't deserve to be criticized. They, it's often, it, to me, it's like a plea is not the right word. What do I try to say? It is often a signifier that they are able and willing to be brought into that fold, or they could be. So I think we, we've got a long way to go, but I think we can take things like that and really build on it. Just out of curiosity, when you go to a game, what do you wear? Ooh, you know, that's a really interesting question because it changes. I also think there's a level of this question I want to touch on that isn't related to going to a game, but um, it really depends. Like tonight is the USA women that play in Ireland at the Rose Bowl. If I go to the game tonight, I'm going to wear a U.S. jersey. I have a few. I don't know which one I'll wear. I probably wear my U.S., the one from this this World Cup, because I have a, a nice little equal pay thing on the back of it, which is poignant right now. Uh, you know, sometimes in England, I'll go to a game and I'll, I won't wear a shirt. I'll wear just all black. I just, I don't know. There's not as much of a culture of wearing stuff over there in the same way. Um if I'm going to a Galaxy game, I will wear a Galaxy shirt. There's a level of me at whatever point in my life that I want to be associated with something, whether that's music with a band t-shirt, a jersey for a soccer team, whatever it is. I like being associated with subcultures. I like being associated to communities. And the easiest way for me to do that is to wear clothing that shows that off. So in England, I'll wear MLS shirts and stuff. But the problem is in England, people don't wear jerseys in the street, really. It's very rare that you'll see people wearing jerseys in the street. So now I'm living in America, I wear jerseys whenever I can, just out and about, because it's culturally accepted to do that. 
um, go into a game, I'll often wear a shirt of the team I support. If I'm going to a game where I don't support either team, I'll just wear my normal clothes. I don't really try to do anything. Um, like if I was going to a Houston Dynamo game, I wouldn't wear a Leicester jersey, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm pretty basic, really. I like to wear jerseys and other stuff, but I will also wear like, if I've got something that's kind of uh, out there or slightly unseen, maybe like a rare shirt, I'll try and wear that just to just to be a little bit on edge. Right, because I've seen you post stuff on Instagram, and uh, one of the first interactions I had with you is when you took a selfie wearing a Leicester City shirt going out about in L.A., and I yeah. literally the same day was wearing an LAFC shirt out and about <laughs> in Los Angeles, and I sent yeah. that to you. It was like this this little connection, it's like a community. It's like, we're wearing soccer jerseys in America. You're from England, I'm from America, but it's still the same thing. <laughs> like we're outside yep. wearing soccer jerseys, and I'm and you not know, going to a game. I, the thing as well I'm really self-conscious about is like, as an English person, I don't like hanging out with English other English people in America, really. It's just a weird thing. Like I moved to America to get away from Britain, so it's a weird thing. So I try not to wear english football shirts soccer shirts in america that often or as little as possible because when i i just whenever i see brits out wearing them it just feels very touristy to me and i just that's the last thing i want to seem like now i'm living here so i, I won't often wear that kind of english shirt out and about in a, in the states which is a weird thing but um i will wear my U.S. jerseys or MLS shirts, though, pretty often. I mean, I'm going to switch kind of topics back to I brought up the Leicester shirt. I'm incredibly yeah. interested, and I don't know the story, so I feel like it would be best for me to not to find out just to experience it in real time on the show. Your experience mm-hmm. with Leicester City, you have in your bio you're a Premier League champion. <laughs> Facetiously, but yeah. What is your relationship with Leicester City? I mean, do you, is, is the question how I got involved, or is the question what is my relationship now? Like, what? What, what was you your mean? What was your relationship during that run? Were, were you associated with the team during that time, or or what was, you, what was the story behind it? Yeah, so I worked for Leicester for two seasons. I worked for Leicester for the 2014-15 season and the 2015-16 season. So I worked for them when we had the what they call the greatest, the greatest escape, escape. Yeah. and for when we won the league. Um, I had just moved... In 2014, I just moved back from New York. I just, I'd been working at the Cosmos. I moved back to New York. I took an internship at... Sa- or like a placement at Saatchi and Saatchi in London. Um, I went to the World Cup in Brazil with Warriors Football... I came home and I was broke, very, very broke, like stealing money from my uncle's pockets so I could buy ramen noodles broke. Um, and I was applying for jobs like crazy. I was on like job seekers allowance, which is benefits in England. So I was, you know, just trying to, I was living in London rent free and on job seekers allowance and it still wasn't enough. And I was just trying to figure out work. So I applied to work at Leicester and 
I had to go out for two interviews. I had to borrow money to get to Leicester from London, all this stuff. And it was for a job to do graphics, basically. It was uh, to do LED pitch graphics and do graphic design and everything else. And I did that job for two seasons. And just coincidentally, it was two of the craziest seasons in football history. Uh, so I was in-house at the stadium every day working for the team. Uh, and I was as part of the media media team. There was like five of us, I think it was, working media for that entire team at that time. Now I believe that it's like 20-something people. So we were working with a very, very small team to do the job where other teams that were in the same similar position had dozens of people and yeah, lots of design, lots of creators for two seasons for the Leicester, which was amazing. It was just, I still can't quite believe I was there for that time. Really? For, for, strange. for those that don't know. So in 2014 and 15, yeah, that's right. 2014 and 15, um, Leicester City was very, 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 very low in the Premier League standings. And how it works is the bottom three teams get relegated down to the second division and the top three teams get promoted up to the top division. So Leicester was in that bottom three going down, but they went on a seven, they won seven of the last nine games, stayed up in the Premier League, come back the next season, 5,001 odds to win the Premier League. And they run and win it. They were top of the league at Christmas, and they stayed top of the league. Fought off Arsenal, fought off Tottenham, fought off Chelsea, and they won. So it's well, Chelsea. Just, did, can I, I just say Chelsea didn't really fight much? Yeah, Chelsea. Was... Chelsea more so helped them out, beating Tottenham. <laughs> yeah, but that that run, or I guess I drew that game two two at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, I think it was a draw. Yeah. Anyways. 5,001 odds, they made the run, they won the Premier League in this most improbable story ever that they're probably going to make movies about. Jamie Vardy has a documentary coming out about himself. Um, You were there for both those things. So talk talk about that, just being in-house for those two moments, just the staying up in the Premier League and then the next year winning the Premier League. Well, Staying that, like, so staying up in the Premier League was crazy because every week we would come in. It was funniest juxtaposition season to season because we would come in on a Monday and we'd lost again. And it was like, how are we ever going to do this? And working for a football team is interesting because when you're working for a football team and things are bad, nothing works on the internet. Social media, news stories, sentiment is terrible. So fans do not want to hear from you or they, they just criticize everything you do. So you can't do new ideas. You can't try things out. You can't be cool or experiment or, you know, have a funny tone of voice. You've just got to like put your head down and get on with it. So that was like the entire season. The first season was like that pretty much. And then it started to get really good. You know, seven, like you said, seven of the last nine games we won. It was just crazy. It was just like everything worked. It was fun and enjoyable. And I remember checking the, permutations like the league table every time we played like trying to figure out what we needed to do it and it was just like the craziest relief and party once we finally got that and then Nigel Pearson got sacked um and we had to we got Claudio Ranieri in in the middle of between seasons and it was just you know very strange kind of switch of gears 
And then the next season was, I don't even know what to say that has never been said. It's just, <laughs> we came in to the office every day and there was never a bad moment. It was just nerves. It was just like scared every time. It was like, can we, I mean, at first it was disbelief. Like we were top of the league after like seven or eight, whatever games. And we're just like, how is this possible? How are we doing this well? You know, we beat Sunderland on the first day of the season, 4-2, all this stuff. And it just kept going, just kept going. Christmas, when Christmas rolled around and we were top of the league Christmas, we were in utter disbelief, like just shocked, scared, like what the heck is happening? <laughs> um, and then there was like stats floating around that like four of the last five teams that have been top of Christmas have won the league. And it was just weird. No one really, we were like, oh yeah, we're going to be the, it's going to be like four of six teams, you know, that have won it because we're not going to. And it, it was just utter disbelief. It was disbelief in both seasons, but vastly different ways each time. It was, I don't even know how to explain it. Just shock. And you, Constant shock. And you didn't need 38 weeks. You won the title no. in 37. 37 games with one game to and spare. And we I think we were 11 points clear in the end, but 10 points clear. 10 points, like 81 points above Arsenal, or 81 points, 10 points above Arsenal in second place at 71. Yeah. Tottenham. Crazy. I mean, to be fair, you had Tottenham chasing you. Tottenham's not good in those situations. But still, <laughs> it, it was a very weird uh, year for the Premier League because City, City was kind of in a weird funk. Chelsea was in a weird <laughs> funk. United was just in disarray as they always seem to be now. And then the yeah. two top chasers were Tottenham and Arsenal who were just, they bottle everything. So we this would, was the perfect storm. Season, we would never have done that. Perfect never storm of things that Leicester flies up to the top and, and then win the league with 81 points, which is, I think would have been good for probably fourth or fifth this year. Yeah. I mean, which is what crazy, but, but to be a part of those, it just took our chance, you know? Yeah, to be a part of those must have been very, very special, and I can imagine it's helped you out with your next venture and, and being a part of more storytelling things because that's the yeah, ultimate story of all time. It's It's been great. I mean, it's, I'll be eternally grateful for that experience. Um, while working inside an English football team is not really something I envision doing again, just I don't – I'm not much alive. Maybe I will but I'm not much aligned with the way that those teams are set up and the culture within them. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy who has like tattoos and nose ring and bleak dyed hair in different colors. And but often working inside an English football team requires you to wear business casual every day. You know, it's not really my kind of thing, but I'm eternally grateful for the time I was there. And uh, it's allowed me, it's afforded me and allowed me a lot of opportunity since. And I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm Definitely don't take that for granted in any way. I mean, I have a less, I have two less tattoos now, so I mean, it's going to be stuck with me forever. So I mean, uh, I have to remain remain grateful. I mean, of course I do, but it's uh, it's definitely a part of me moving forward. Always will be. I'll be able to go to King Bar Stadium in fifty years, and I'm sure see some people I recognize and. We can talk about the stories from those two years. To be a part of that must have been fantastic. But to move on from that uh, to what you're doing now with 
come and go and where is football. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of want to wrap up more of the show with this. What is next for you? What do you want to do with these two projects and, and where do you want to end up in the next five to 10 years? I mean, if I'm honest, my goal always was to move to America. So I haven't, it's something I need to do is reestablish my goals for the next five, 10 years. I haven't fully done that yet. I like being here. I want to stay here. Um, need to continue to work hard to do that. But I think I really enjoy being in control of my own destiny. The being my own boss thing is pretty stressful, but I do enjoy it. So with Common Goal, uh, I really like the breadth of clients. I like working with different people from different walks of life, working with different brands and teams and everything else and the variance of projects. Obviously, a lot of what we do at Common Goal is very soccer related. So I'd like that to continue to be a part of my path. But I'm interested in seeing what I've applying what I've learned from, you know, music and soccer and continuing that growth into different areas. So I would love to, I'm huge, I'm a big gaming esports fan, um, but I've never done a lot of professional work with that industry. I'd like to do more there. Um, I would love to test myself in sort of new and up and coming Industries like cannabis industry, I would like to see in California. I'd like to see if I can bring any nuance or knowledge, expertise to that place. Just like branching out and making myself feel accomplished and well-rounded is a big thing for me at the moment. So we'll see. Specifically with football stuff, with soccer stuff, I want to continue growing Warriors football. I think it can be a real platform for for good. I know we want to do more work with NGOs and, and charities and help people with it. I'd also just like to expand it, become more regular with it, grow the community base, just, you know, level it up, so to speak. I had a great time working with Audi recently and doing some branded content, so continue doing those things. That's kind of in a state of flux at the moment because we're deciding what the goals are for it, but I think some growth is, is really on the cards for that. Common goal as well, the agency side, the creative studio services, Continue those. Maybe maybe the work I want to do in different industries gets folded up underneath Common Goal and that becomes a more established agency. Who knows? I'm not really sure what form and structure that will take yet, but um, well, I guess we're going to find out. That's the, be- that's the beauty of being in charge of your own destiny is you never really know what's going to happen. You've just got to throw some things out in front of you and see how you can create the pathway to get there. What we do around here to end interviews, we go through a lightning round. Five to seven random questions, answer in 10 seconds cool. or less. You ready? Okay. All right. Um, if you could have a dinner party with three famous people, living or dead, who would it be? Three famous people, living or dead. I'd say Elvis Presley, no idea why. <laughs> I would say uh, Carlos Alberto and somebody like. I don't know exactly, but somebody really, really old, like from the 1500s or something. I'm not sure. Would you rather live a week in the past or a week in the future? I would rather live a week in the past. If they made a movie about your life, who would play you? Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
don't know. <laughs> what is your favorite uh, smell in the world? Oh, it's like that weird vanilla sweet sugar flavor thing that you often get in like cheap perfume from Abercrombie or something in like 2004. I really like that. If you could represent the uh, United Kingdom in one Olympic uh, competition, what would it be? Oh my god! Not we'll, we'll take we'll take soccer and football out of it. Oh, um, I'm gonna say skiing. Skiing. Yeah. You pretty don't, good don't ask me. You're pretty good. You, skier, you want to ask me why? Yeah, but like why? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know is the answer, but probably something to do with it just being kind of this old school sport that has stuck around and it's quite prestigious, but still on the outskirts of consciousness. I just think it's really, um, it's really interesting cultural thing, either skiing or tennis. One of the two. Little Andy Murray winning a gold medal. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That was a fun time. Not even as an Englishman. It's just we don't have any good American tennis players, so we kind of hop on the back of people that speak our language. Um, well, I'd argue Serena is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Serena, hey, Serena is the best ever. But last question. It's the last question of the whole entire interview. And it's the one that everyone in the U.S. and the U.K. wants to know. What is the next hair color for you? <laughs> I think I'm going to go rusty orange but shave my head for it so it's really really short well rusty orange hey you should come over for a dynamo mm-hmm. game looking like that because people take pictures yeah. with you <laughs> wear that orange man i know um what is it right now it's like gray or did you go pink it was blue smoky blue gray but the blue is now faded so i just like look about 50 years older than i actually am <laughs> <laughs> fully silver when did you start doing different things with your hair? You know, when I was on the MySpace, as they say, <laughs> back, like when I was on MySpace in like 2005, I had like long shoulder, like bleached white hair with white glasses. My MySpace name was Al- Albino Nate, Albino Nate, and it was a look, a full look. <laughs> I, I started to cut it and it was always blonde. And then I've gone about 10 or 12 years where it wasn't colored at all. Then last year I dyed it blonde on the top and started going pink and I did that faded and it was blonde and then this year I've just started again so it's kind of a recent thing last 12 months I've started doing it again I think it's a good look with the nose ring I just wanted I know I just feel like I want to just do random crap I just want to do <laughs> things I got nose ring I've got tattoos I just want to have some fun with it you know I'm, it, life's too boring to stay the same the entire time what's your most recent tattoo most recent is well i got two i got two pretty much oh no no so most recent is my hand tattoos i got family member initials that passed away on the inside of my fingers um which is like a little tribute kind of thing but i also on the inside of my thumbs i got lcsc second of may so for some reason, I decided to get a lefty tattoo next to my family members. <laughs> but I, if I hold my thumbs up now, you can read LCFC 2nd May, which is kind of wild because how visible it is. But it felt, I don't know. I just wanted to do it. I just felt like doing it. So I'm losing my mind. So I'm just doing all this crazy stuff. But it is who I am, apparently. Hey, you do you, man. Yeah. Yeah. America. 
teaching me to be individual. <laughs> uh, so you're not moving anywhere else? You're, you're good here? No plans. I'm good in California for now. Um, I've always wanted to move to LA since I was really young. So now I'm finally here. I'm wanting to stick around for a minute or two. I don't know what I'll feel in a couple of years' time, but right now, really, really liking it here. Finally feels like home, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you ever roll through Louisiana, I doubt Absolutely. you. I, I'm o- <laughs> I, overdue a trip. It's been years. It's been what, what's Where'd you go to when you came here? New Orleans or any anywhere else? Uh, I think Baton Rouge, New Orleans. I don't know where else. I've been to a few places in Louisiana, but it was like 2008 or 2009-ish. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Um, I want to, I need to come see those buggy as play. <laughs> the, the, on my on my list of American soccer teams, um, oh, the, oh, the Jesters, right? Yeah, Wait, the Jesters. The yeah, the Buggy Dudes are in Omaha. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, my yeah. bad. Sorry, um, I'm confusing myself. The Jesters. Have you ever been to an American college football game? No, I have not. But I am an MSU fan, Michigan State, because we used to travel through East Lansing all the time, and I have friends there. But I've never been to any any games. I think I'm going to try and go to some like UCLA games or something this year, but I'd like to travel. My business partner, Zach and I, Zach Goldman, um, he actually texted me the other day. He was like, all right, this year we're going to go to see the Chargers play at Stubb Center before they move. And we're going to go do a big college football road trip. Like we'll fly somewhere and see a huge game. So that's on the cards, but it hasn't been done yet. Well, I would, I would like to offer you up some LSU tickets. I would love that. That would be. I've watched LSU on TV for like years, just on dodgy streams and ESPN UK. So, would love to make that happen. My family and I Absolutely. have season season tickets, so they play oh, man. like Florida and Auburn at home this year, and I think Texas A and M at the end of the year. Well, but, yeah, I have flight credit, so I will see you there. Send me dates, <laughs> and I'll see you there. Yeah, well, you can. Uh, you can free place to stay here. Get a guest bedroom, and we'll make it happen, man. Definitely. Let's do it. All right, man. Well, uh, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This podcast has been a very interesting thing. I did not know how this would go. And I feel like it went a pretty good way. There's still a thousand more questions, but maybe we'll get you mm-hmm. back on pretty soon. We can do round. We can do round two, three, four, five. <laughs> but I uh, thank you so much, man. I hope you have a, a fantastic journey around America when college football starts. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'll talk soon.